Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us that we can gather together and look at your word and we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds tonight as we listen to Dr. McCabe as we uh, study the, the minor prophets. We pray that we might find some some things in here that we can apply to our lives. We know they're there. We just ask, Lord, that you would guide us and help us. Let the Holy Spirit work in, in a marvelous way tonight. Thank you for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's not a problem. I'll, uh, we don't get stickers tonight, do we? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I start giving out stickers, I'll remember not to give you one. <laughs> oh, no. But I don't think there's much chance I'll do that. I'm a seminary teacher. <laughs> We're supposed to be pretty stoic and all that sort of good stuff. So, anyway. Last week we started to look at Hosea, and this was on page 7 of our notes. I think we were looking at, we left off with the date and set. Hosea, the son of Berai, delivered his prophetic messages in the middle of the 8th century B.C. Now, we need to conceive of the 8th century B.C., seems like a long time ago, and it is. But when you're thinking back, you know, Jesus dies at 33 AD. So this is 800 years before he comes. So there's a long time. At this point, God's still trying to sell these to Hebrew nation. But being stiff-necked, hard apart, they fight. And they resist God. And so as we go through the minor prophets, these prophets are going to come along. You're going to see them continuously confronting the nation because they're hard-hearted. In fact, I don't think that's that hard to conceive of. I mean, we know hard-hearted people all the time. It's, it's whoever's in opposition to me. That's how I know. No, I'm kidding. I mean, something the president said about the debate last week. But in any event, uh, arrogance, I guess, can carry you a long way. <laughs> but it'll come to an end. Well, anyway, so this is this is very early. It's in the middle of the 8th century B.C. Most of the information we have for Jose is derived from this book. Hosea is apparently the only writing prophet to come from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, let me pause and explain the northern kingdom as opposed to the southern kingdom. Under King Saul, David, Solomon, Israel was a united nation. And so what happened after uh, Solomon died, it splits. So you have the northern kingdom, which is apostate, and the southern kingdom, which has a lot of apostasy too. But you do have more believers in the southern kingdom. See, what happened in the northern kingdom, they set up two places of false worship when they broke, broke away from uh, the southern kingdom. And so from the very beginning, it was corrupt by idolatry. Where the southern kingdom... They will have some godly kings. 
and we'll see revivals with those kings. So more believers were in the southern kingdom, but there were still some in the northern kingdom. But what they would have to do is uh, three times a year, if they're following the law, they have to make a trek to Jerusalem. And so the genuine believers who were in the north would make that uh, annual or triannual pilgrimage. But in general, that was not the case with the northern kingdom. That's why it's odd to see one prophet come from the northern kingdom. But it's like everywhere. There's always true believers. You know, I remember years ago when I was in seminary, you know, we had this impression of China that everybody was atheistic. I can remember vividly thinking it was a closed country. And uh, as time goes along, we find out more information. And, you know, I had the privilege to teach Chinese house church leaders for, oh, eight years. Uh, I can't go this year, but uh, I was targeted to, but I had to back out because of some health concerns. But lo and behold, when I get over there, we have a number of these house church leaders who are Christians. One of them, I remember my first year, his grandparents were led to Christ by J. Hudson Taylor. So Christianity there is passed on through the family. And so uh, that's how you preserve Christianity. The outside world doesn't know it. But some of these people are very zealous. I've had men who have been in prison. I had one, he and his wife were both in prison. He had been in prison earlier. Uh, second time he was in prison, they also took his wife. As he got out of prison, he was expecting to see his wife. But lo and behold, she died right after she was released from prison. But you know, he thanked God that God counted him worthy to suffer for him. And when he tell me this, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, I don't want to suffer. I think that's pretty normal. But it happens. Uh, there were a lot of Christian missionaries in China before even during World War II. And then afterwards, when it becomes communistic, they go underground. But uh, a lot of that missionary work had lasting fruit. And we got to see it firsthand by being there. In fact, some of the Chinese estimate that they have uh, over 100 million Christians. I think that's what the Chinese government puts out. Uh, most of them think it's a little bit higher than that. But that's amazing. How many people are in China? Do you know that? Uh, what is it, 1.4 billion? Uh, India's fast kept gaining on them. You know, when you have a one-child policy, it's, it's easy for someone else to get caught up. Oh. In India, I think now they put constraints saying you can only have two children. But I had some guys that thought you had more than one child. What you do is you move away from the larger cities and live in rural communities. The penalty is you get, get a tax. But if the government finds out and you already have a child, that your wife's pregnant, uh, she will be forced to have an abortion. 
By the way, that's going to be the case with Obamacare. You know, people really need to wake up. I see where there's two Southern Baptist schools that are suing the Obama administration because they're going to be enforced to make provisions for abortion. Well, that's going to be true for everybody. It's just not them. That would be true for inner city Baptist church. Uh, you know, churches that have insurance policies, that's going to happen. So we see some of our liberties uh, being destroyed. I suspect since Obama's four homosexual marriages, there's going to be mandates about not discriminating against them. I thank God I'm 63. I don't think I'll see the full effect of it. But friends, it's coming. So we need to be prepared for it. But we need to more prepare our children. You know, you know witness to them. You know, try to disciple them. Our grandchildren. Things like that. But it's scary. Younger people don't see it like some of us veterans do. But they're living in a false world. I'd like to have them all be a police officer for for about six months. They would see the other side. But that's where we're headed. And now, I use all that illustratively to describe the Northern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom is a corrupt kingdom. In our day, they would be the types... Well, I don't know. I can't conceive of anybody in Israel having an abortion. In fact, their policy was... Their planned policy was the more the merrier. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of children. So their plan, Planned Parenthood was a lot of children. Is the Northern Kingdom part of Israel right now, or is it one of the other nations like Iran, Iraq, or whatever? Well, I think by and large it's, it's uh, been dispersed. It's probably intermixed. Uh, I think the southern kingdom's there. But there's remnants from the northern kingdom. Because in the kingdom age, God's clear that all 12 tribes will be represented. So somehow God keeps track of it. Uh, so God's better than a Macintosh computer. He never makes a mistake. <laughs> and Macintoshes are pretty good. But uh, a lot of the believers with the division in the northern kingdom did migrate to the south just because they saw that's where true religion really lay. So that's the state. So it is, to me, when you see that Hosea's from the Northern Kingdom, he's one of the few. So it is, that is impressive. Also, from the kings mentioned in 1-1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Barai, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoz, king of Israel. So there's four kings from the southern kingdom mentioned, and one from the northern kingdom. So he's there during a span here that's probably approximately 40 years, because he's prophesying during the reigns of all these kings. 
So it's a considerable manuscript. Uh, let's go on to the next page. Hosea prophecies were partially delivered during the chaotic period of the reign of Jeroboam II, a wicked king. During the days of Jeroboam II, Israel experienced great external prosperity, but internally it was apostate. Now Jeroboam's the king of the northern kingdom. While Jeroboam II was king, the day of judgment seemed remote to Israel. Yet the Assyrians were becoming the dominant world power. Under the reign of Tigris, Pileser III, Damascus fell to this Assyrian king in 732 B.C. And in 722 B.C., the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, fell and its people were taken captive to Assyria. So after this point, the northern kingdom does not exist after 722 B.C. Hosea, as well as Amos, prophesied during the last days of the northern kingdom. So uh, Jeroboam, in many ways, militarily, was a great king. But he was as, as apostate as could be. Well, he's the one that sets these things in motion, and the northern kingdom will fall in 722 B.C. So that's a little bit about the history. So after this point, we'll see the prophets that come after this point. Now, we have some that come before, but a lot of them will come after it. And so let me prophesy to the southern kingdom. So let's look at the message, and this is generally where I'll spend most of my time. So I'll expand on what I have here. Uh, notice I summarized the content of the book in this paragraph. God had initiated a covenant relationship with Israel. Now, let me explain the covenant relationship. A covenant overlaps with our idea of a contract. So there's an arrangement set up where God's what we would call the suzerain, the sovereign. Israel's considered the vassal. It's subservient to the sovereign as you would expect. Well, with this covenant relationship, it's violated by Israel, and God uses Hosea to picture a marriage relationship. Look at uh, Hosea 1-2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter to Blaam, and she conceived and bore a son. I want you to notice the command. God commands him to go marry an adulterous, a woman in harlotry. In fact, some try to uh, say when Hosea married, she wasn't. Although God knew she was going to become... It makes no difference. God knew she was a bad woman. And it had to be that case for the analogy with Israel. So he's... Uh, can I say married? I'm not sure that he's always happily married. 
But nevertheless, God chose him to do that because he wants to show to Israel that they're an adulterous wife also. So, I'm glad I wasn't the prophet to say, I mean, that would be a tough life. So, that's the imagery there. So, his marriage is a picture of this covenant relationship where Israel becomes a harlot. So God had started the marriage with her, and he's preaching to her to repent. So anyway, this covenant relationship, God's a sovereign, Israel's the vassal. Israel should be doing what God commanded them. Remember we looked at Deuteronomy 28? Very important chapter. The whole book of Deuteronomy is very important because you have what's called covenant blessings, and you have covenant curses. What's interesting in Deuteronomy, a whole lot of time is spent on the covenant curses. By the way, you have the same thing in Leviticus 26, covenant curses and blessings. So it's a dominant theme in, in Deuteronomy. So here, God's going to bring those judgments on his adulterous wife, Israel. He brought them out of Egypt and poured abundant blessings upon them. But they departed from him by chasing after false gods. I'm often asked, which is worse? Gomer as a harlot or apostasy? Well, they're both wicked sins. The people, uh, apostasy is worse. Usually what goes with apostasy is all kinds of uh, moral deviations. But really, what comes first is the apostasy. That sets you up for all kinds of things. In fact, if you notice, in a lot of pagan religions, it revolves around what they call fertility cults. A big deal in the ancient areas. I mean, we think we're bad in our day. I've got documents that describe the stuff they do. And quite frankly, they were as wicked as we were. The only difference is, is we can plug in the Internet you know, get some of the premium channels on your cable TV. And we can see it more graphically and more often. So in that sense, I think we are worse. But still, the same basic sins are being committed. So it was a terrible, wicked time. Israel was wicked. And so God here... He sees this spiritual apostasy as a breach in their covenant relationship uh, because of Israel's unfaithfulness. God compares her to an unconcerned mother in Hosea. He also compares her to an unthankful son, a stubborn heifer, and an illegitimate son. Can you imagine? mother that does not care about her children. It's hard to conceive of. However, it happens. In fact, it happens all more than all we know. Uh, or even if we think of, uh, of uh, an unthankful child, that can be a real grind. You're raising infants when they're cute and cuddly and 
as they age and get older, they're disrespectful. Don't appreciate uh, the good upbringing. And they rebel. That happens. That happens a lot. Uh, you know, I, I always said to myself, now, now my one, my youngest son, he's a little testy, but I, thank God there's, I think he is a believer, he's a weak believer, uh, but he's got a very good job as a CPA. He's a senior manager at Resnick, at the Resnick Group. So I never had to worry about him coming home to stay with us. But I remember when he first got out of Bob Jones, he was saying, well, well Dad, you were at Burns from Young at that time. I could get placed in the Detroit area, and I could come home and live. <laughs> and I said, son, times have changed. That room upstairs is now $500. And as your salary increased, so was the price. <laughs> now, he was only joking. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was trying to turn it on him. No, we always welcome our kids back. We've had my daughter Amy, when they were between houses years ago, they lived with us for a while. My son Bob lived with us for a while. And, you know, things went along well. Our youngest son, he came out financially better off than all three of uh, his two uh, siblings. So that was never an issue. And I thank God for it, quite frankly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even with our others, when you get two families together, it's just tough. You can be the most wonderful, blessed Christians in the world. But there's differences of opinion. Just the nature of the beast. And I come to think of it, even my wife disagrees with me. Lo <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, and behold. <laughs> and she's thinking, well, I disagree with her. <laughs> well, anyway, those things happen. It becomes on a larger scale when you have a family. So to think of an unthankful child, that's hard. You know, a, or an illegitimate son. I've got a sister, all her daughters had children before they were married. I don't think she may have one grandchild I forget. I mean, she got a lot of grandchildren. Maybe one came from a state when a daughter was married. I'm not sure about that. But they send them back home now. And my sister, she had a, you know, parted away from the faith for a period of time, but then she came to repentance, and now she's trying to have a testimony with Christ. But the lackness when she was away from the Lord Remember that classic statement by a man I totally disagree with? Chickens have come home to roost. <laughs> but he took that from somebody else. <laughs> so it, it, she's had a tough life because her daughters want to send their children to her to babysit. And they don't want to comply. Well, those things happen. Well, we're all familiar with those things, and you know, maybe we've gone through a little bit of it. It's tough. Can you imagine with Israel? God laid out the marching orders. They agreed to it. And now, like these various analogies, they're rising up to defy him. 
And so God's going to bring upon them the covenant curses. Well, to purify his wayward people, as I said, God brings the covenant curses, the judgments. However, because God loved Israel, he will not totally abandon his people. The Lord would work to restore his people by renewing their covenant relationship with him and to fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. Can you imagine that type of love? Now, Israel is still an apostate nation. But friends, if we take the Old Testament and respect it for what it says, they will be restored. They will go through the tribulation. But it will be at the end of the tribulation when they will look upon him whom they pierced. And they will praise the Lord. And they will repent. But they're not there now. So that's been a disobedient nation. So it, it's been really bad. But yet, God in the midst of this has this great love. He made some promises to Abraham and to David. And he will bring those to pass. But he's going to discipline his people before that. And that's what we see them going through in Hosea. So, anyway, continuing with my, the message here. Uh, by drawing upon the heartaches of Hosea's failed marital relationship with Gomer and his subsequent redemption of her, God communicates this message about his covenant relationship with Israel. I'm sure in Hosea's case, with that redemption, he was happy. Uh, but before then, life would have been a nightmare. Well, that's the message of the book. Now, I also have an outline here, but did you all have any questions about the message? If you have any. You know, you know your aunt's about saying something. I won't bite you. I'm, I'm not a hard person. <laughs> Uh, and if you feel more comfortable, you can talk to me afterwards, or uh, you know, you can even email me. Uh, my email address is rmccabe at d for Detroit, b for Baptist, t for Theological, s for Seminary, dbts.edu. And if you forget that, just go to Google, type in dbts and it, you'll come up with it. And there's a page with all of the props, ugly pictures up there. They've got an email address there. Right on the front. It's on the front. Okay, I, I didn't look at the front. Maybe I should have looked at what they did. <laughs> or what I did. Oh, that must be on your front. Well, your picture, yeah, where your picture is. The one with... Oh, okay. I don't have that personally. Oh, okay. I don't look at my picture. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's just hard to believe. Where did all that hair go? <laughs> but fortunately, I can grow a beard. And that was by design. When you're losing your hair, you want to put it down below where people will look at that rather than, ex or at least exclusively, looking at the top. That's right. Exactly. Just like I told my wife. I'm going to it with my grave. <laughs> but anyway, just email me and I'll be glad to respond. 
Okay, well that's Hosea. We need to move on then to the book of Joel. Notice the title for this book is derived from the name of this author, Joel. His name perhaps reflects the faith of his parents. In fact, usually I think when when we look at these names that sound godly, it had to come from the parents, unless the name was changed. And we don't have any information about that. So this probably reflects the faith of the parents. Though there are other men named Joel in the Old Testament. We know very little about this prophet besides what we know from his book. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're informed that he was the son of Bethuel. Joel's frequent references to Zion and the house of the Lord suggest that he probably lived not far from Jerusalem. So he is prophesying to the southern kingdom. Uh, because of the statements about the priesthood in 113 to 14 and 1217, some think Joel was a priest as well as a prophet. In any case, Joel was a clear, concise, and uncompromising preacher of repentance. So that's his credit. And by the way, Jose was the same. Most of the prophets are the same. So let's look at the date and setting. There is some disagreement among conservative scholars about the date of Joel. Based upon internal evidence within the book of Joel, some conservative scholars have opted for an early date, about 835 B.C. In fact, uh, let's go back to the introductory stuff. Go back to page 2. Notice how I give you the dates for the prophets. Notice Obadiah is 845 B.C. Joel's 835 B.C. So it's the second oldest minor prophet. But notice, Hosea is later. As far as chronological order, it's fourth as far as this chronology among the prophets. So our Bible follows what we call canonical order. And so we're following that, but I don't want you to get confused with the dates. Joel is one of the earliest of the minor prophets. Well, as that famous theologian said, that's all I have to say about that. Talking to him, he, he, he stated that. He was making a joke on the internet fundamental Baptist website. He says, a quote a famous theologian, that's all I have to say about him. Well, unfortunately, I saw that wretched movie. <laughs> when my dad was dying um, with, with Lou Gehrig's disease, I had to take care of him a couple months before he died. And he watched that. There was two of his favorite movies. Uh, Let's see, the first one was uh, was Forrest Gump. I think, what about Bob was out at that time? But he had this book called Bagger Vance, which became a movie. 
But see, my dad's name was Robert. His middle name was Vance. That's why he liked Jagger Vance. Uh, and Forrest Gump, he thought of it as kind of a Hollywoodized presentation of key moments he remembered in his life. And I remember telling my daddy, I said, this is abominable. You've got this feather floating in at the beginning and it's floating out at the end. There's nobody that could be as dumb as Forrest Gump <laughs> and do as well as he did. Uh, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> so anyway, I've watched it about four times in two weeks. So anyway, my wife and I, we never watch it. I can't see the movie. But there's some memorable lines. So I may quote that. Uh, that's all I have to say about that. Well, in any event, notice here uh, we have our second paragraph. Assuming an 835 BC date, this book may have been written either during the rule of Queen Athalia, she ruled briefly, and by the way, that was in disobedience to God's commands. It was to be kings. And she ruled in absolute mockery of God. Or it could have been in the early reign of Joaz. This would explain why there is no reference to a king. For either Queen Athalia was on the throne, or this was during the early phases of Joaz's reign, when the country was governed by his advisor, Jehoiada, the high priest. Joash became king, I think it was eight years old. So he would have been in the shadow for, you know, probably seven, eight years. And so uh, that may be why the king's not mentioned. Well, whatever the case, uh, we can comfortably date this at 835 BC. Well, let's then look at the message Drawing upon a devastating locust plague that affected all of Judean society, Joel uses this as a harbinger for the future day of the Lord. Let me pause there. Let's look at this locust plague. Uh, let's look at Joel chapter 1. In verses 2 to 12, that's described. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Doesn't sound like a pretty picture. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Will, all you drinkers of wine. Will, because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land. Now, the nations used metaphorically to refer to the locust plague because it's a great number of them. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. 
It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines. See, this is where we see this is not a genuine nation of people. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are mourning. Those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Well, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Now what's clear in this account is that he is referring to a locust plague. And it's going to devastate their land. Now can you imagine Israel is primarily an agrarian society? And to lose all this would be, I mean, it cause a national disaster. So they see their livelihood, their wealth, being, being eaten up by the locust plague. So this would have been devastating. You know, I guess it would be like when you know, our, our jobs are being taken away. I mean, we've seen that. You know, uh, Obama's Drop the day after the uh, after the base. What did we go from 8.2, You can prove anything with statistics. There's there's a way to get that lower. George Bush had it available in his time. He didn't use it. The one that was being used in the standard way is the more accurate parameter. Plus, think of all the people. I know people who are just working part time or they're making less money. Well, our nation is suffering in that way as well. And it could be worse. Now we could be like Europe. Like Great Britain. Isn't that where we want to go? Well, we. That's a preacher we. What I mean is you. <laughs> our country. We want to follow the European model. Well, we're going to have a high unemployment. That's just the bottom line. And we're just getting a taste of that now. So, I use that analogously with Israel. It would even be worse. Because their jobs are cut out. At least for a period of time. So this ruined their livelihood. Also, Joe uses this as a harbinger, a forerunner for the future day of the Lord. Now, we do need to pause and look at the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is what we often refer to as an eschatological thing. By that, what we mean is it's future. It's prophesied. It's at the end times. God will use this to describe the end times. He also connects it with, uh, with Judah. 
but he does refer to the end times primarily with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is is a time, notice it's called day of the Lord. It's a time of the Lord. It's a time that's characterized by something that God does. This time is a prophesied period of time. The day of the Lord is always a prophetic thing. With this prophecy, God will show his sovereign control. In Joel, this day is primarily presented as a future time of eschatological judgment. Let's look at a few texts here. It's important to understand this. Notice 115. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Look at another text. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 1. By the way, chapter 2, 1 to 11 is devoted to that. Chapter 3. In those days and at that time when I restore the fortune of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the vale of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots of my people and traded boys for prostitutes and sold girls for wine to drink. Well, it's not a pretty picture. But notice here, God's going to restore. So the day of the Lord, it primarily focuses on judgment, but it also includes a time of restoration. And that's what we'll see. You know, my understanding is, is that's what the tribulation is all about. It, it is a judgment on, on Israel. God's also going to judge all the other sinners out there. But nevertheless, this is the communicated message to the nation. They violated his covenant. He's been trying to speak to them for years. But they've rejected God. Well, God will bring them to belief. At the end of the tribulation, God will regenerate all those living Israelites. By the way, nobody can just believe on their own. God's got to quicken them, make them alive. Theologically, we call it regeneration. And with that, what happens? God gives us life. The result is, is that I repent and believe. Sometimes there's this notion that God did it all. Friends, when I got saved, I really did repent and believe. I made the choice there. Well, see, regeneration explains it all. He changed my desires so that I wanted Jesus. Well, that's what's going to happen to Israel. Nobody gets saved unless the Spirit of God works. It's just biblically, theologically impossible. Faith is a gift from God. So, that's what God's going to have to do in order to get them to repent and believe. Just like He did for you and I when we were saved. God had to get a hold of us and we actually repented and believed. You know, I can still vividly remember when, when I was saved. You know, I was, when I was in college, I was wild. I was 
you know, I was fairly part of the hippie stuff. Um, I had some friends that were at the Kent State Rides. Uh, in fact, I had a friend that was paralyzed for life. He wanted to be in the front line. What a stupid move. I always thought it was crazy. <laughs> but, you know, I, I remember one night, I'd been, I'd already previously witnessed to, my dad was a Christian. I heard the gospel message for years. This poor guy, we were uh, a little tipsy and we were cursing him and stuff like that. And they decided to come in and give us what we deserved. They got coffee and they went over the gospel with us for about four or five hours. I knew the gospel. I could explain it. Why did I want Christ at about 4 to 5 a.m. in the morning? It wasn't to get them off my back because they weren't high-pressure guys. But for some reason I wanted Jesus. I say, I was regenerated. And that's what happened when you wanted Jesus. The Spirit regenerated you and you repented and believed. Now, the point of my illustration, God's got to do the same thing to Israel. But He will. And when that happens, He's going to restore their blessings. He will judge the nations who treated them despicably. You know, it does seem to me of all the nations that have been abused, the Jews are the most abused. Why does the Middle East, everybody hate them? Well, they're Jewish. So they've experienced persecution. They still get it. You know, they could be dispersed, dispersed from the land again. I would not rule that out as a possibility. They haven't repented and believed. They're apostate nations. But God's going to preserve his people, and he's going to bring them back, and they will be there during the tribulation. They will face the hardships. But God will grant to them repentance and faith, and they will believe. And they will thrive in the kingdom. And of course, so will we. But the point is, these are the great, wonderful things. God prophesies for his nation. But they can't get it until they repent and believe. So I'm not one of these people that says, we have to you know, bend over backwards and you know, just say Israel's okay on everything. I don't agree with that. I do think that we have to honor our commitments to Israel like we used to do in, a few years ago. We're, we're breaking covenant arrangements with them. Now, I don't think God's going to judge us just because of that. We're wicked all the way around. That's just a manifestation so, you know, I'm not on the Jerry Falwell kick or anything like that. I just recognize that in the end, the Jews will be there. And that's all I'm saying. At this point, we need to pray for Israel. But we do recognize that they're under a state of condemnation, a state of judgment. So I don't want to praise them excessively like somehow. Remember Jerry Falwell? You, know, you just look the other way at anything Israel did. Well, I never agree with that. But I think our proper response is to pray for them, 
And if we have the opportunity to witness, I take them right to Isaiah 52 and 53. They don't believe in the New Testament, but they do believe in Isaiah. So to me, that's our responsibility now. Anyway, this is what the future will be. This is what we call the Day of the Lord. Now, Israel will have judgments like in Amos, where the Day of the Lord will be in his day. But most of them refer to this eschatological time period in the future. So, you know, you have to ask Pastor Kim to do a series on prophecy. It, when I was younger, that was a big deal. It's, you know, I think rightfully so, we're more concerned with more basic things about sanctification. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you can just tease him and tell him I said he should do that. I don't know, has he? No, probably not. Now we, you know, I don't do much on it. But I do touch on it when I go through the minor prophets. So I'll have lunch with him tomorrow. I'll tell him. You'll ask him to do a series of prophets. <laughs> I'll say, uh, Bob and Ron were leading the way. <laughs> yeah, and I was just the one listening, standing by. <laughs> Well, anyway, that will be the, the negative aspect and then the positive. The day of the Lord is not simply a time of judgment on the Gentiles. It will be on them as well. But it is a time of judgment on Judah, culminating in the time of restoration and blessing. As Hosea 3, the first few verses reflected. Confronted with God's judgment, Joel writes a warning to Judah that they need to humbly repent and turn to the Lord. Let's look at chapter 2. Verses 1 to 11 in this chapter describe the locust plague at, at length. Then beginning in verse 28, he describes the day of the Lord. And he continues on for a few verses. But notice here, right, let's go back to, I'm sorry, I thought it was at the end of the chapter. Let's, let's go to chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He concludes this section about the locust plague, and it's at the conclusion of that. That's where he challenges them to repent and believe. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. But you're going to have to repent first. God wants their heart, not their sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament system, they do offer sacrifices. But in reality, God wants the heart first. Then that sacrifice can be acceptable. Uh, David reflected this in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance. You know, to me, what does God want? A broken and contrite heart. Just like David prayed. And by the way, David was a believer. So, as a believer, when I sin, 
you know, I, I, I repent. I miss sometimes, I'm sure. But it culminates and there's a breaking point. And I really do want a broken and contrite heart. Without that, I won't see God. So the mark of a true Christian is that they do repent and they do believe. So, you know, 1 John 1 9 is a wonderful verse. It's for believers. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all right, unrighteousness. I, I knew a couple people who didn't say there was a need for repentance in the Christian life. Friends, in the book of 1 John, there's no way around it. These are tests about whether you're saved or not. The first test is do you have the right attitude towards sin? Do we repent? Do we look to Christ? Well, I think in defining repentance, we need to remember the concept of broken and contrite heart, not a proud heart. You know some good examples of somebody who did not have a broken and contrite heart? Remember Saul? Samuel confronted him. He he had taken king. He should have killed him. He took their sheep. Samuel comes up and he hears the sheep. And he he goes after Saul. And uh, he says, Saul leads to the fact, 3 Samuel 15, the one child to the lady. It reminds me of dealing with my children when they were at home. How do you get a confession out of them? You, you lead them down a path. And then it culminates in them acknowledging what they did. Well, Saul eventually gets to that point. But after he does that, the very next verse, he says to Samuel, Go back and honor me before the people. Friends, when you have that type of attitude, you can really repent. Where David, when he gets confronted with sin, he breaks down. He uh, It's recorded in 1 Samuel 11 12. Psalm 51 is a psalm he wrote as a result of his repentant heart. What a contrast. Well, I always say it's the difference between somebody who's really saved and someone who's a pretender. And uh, that's sad. Like Judas. So it's... But we need... In our personal lives, we should never forget that. I would say if God is compelling Israel to repent, I think we can make an analogy with our lives. When we get hardened in some things, you know, we all often study Scripture on something. And uh, it's funny how that can work on you. But there's things, I mean, I get I get frustrated when my wife disagrees with me. She shouldn't, but she does. And it works me out. Well, I'm wrong with that. That, that was probably wrong from the very beginning. <laughs> but those things can hang on. And one thing we try not to do, though, though it has happened, not to go to bed angry with each other. When we're younger, that was hard. As you get older, you become more compliant and generally, not always. I wish that was true all the time. But nevertheless, there's other areas. You know, we 
we have desires to be successful, to get out of hand, um, desires to make more money. Um, we've got our various struggles with, with various kinds of lust. Well, friends, we need to recognize that those are sin too and put them before God and repent. So anyway, I wanted to conclude tonight on a practical note there because I think we can make a comparison here with our own personal life. Anyway, uh, I, I could start the next book, but it seems like a bad place to start since the class is about over. And uh, I'm not legalistic on the time schedule. So if we need to go over, we'll go a little bit over. If we get done early, we'll be done early. But this is not too much early because it's 8.14. And my watch is right. It's one of these uh, Casio or Casio, whatever. Casio. And so it's always right. And I know Dr. Combs, he and I, to the second, we have the same time. Because he's got the same watch. So I have the same watch. <laughs> anyway, thanks for your attention. Thank you.